back with another one of those offensive tweets. <laughs> Art cinema, fart cinema. Art cinema, fart cinema. Hello. Hi. Welcome to Art Cinema, Fart Cinema. The podcast that pods all over the casting pod. It's a podcast about bad films, sort of. And kind of obscure movies... And, and in this case, sort of genre-defining movies in a lot of ways. <laughs> I'm Simon. I'm Nadim. And this episode is called Party Farties, in which we talk about... I'm, I'm reluctant to say bad, but we talk about party movies. I think that the fart factor comes from the fact it's a very silly genre. Mm. Like It's basically the madcap comedy, which it's all about being as outrageous and bonkers as possible. Yeah. So, so that's where the fart element comes in. This week, we're going to be talking about the classic movie. And I want to say classic because this is like, this was a huge movie. And it's... It's 10 years old. It's 10 years old. Jesus. Uh, the Hangover. Yee! The 2009 comedy that, at least when I was growing up, it was it was kind of used as a, not a milestone, but it was used as like a, oh, this is this year's The Hangover. You know, like whenever a new comedy came out after The Hangover, it was like, this is this year's Hangover, or oh, this movie's as good, nearly as good as The Hangover, or this movie's as funny as The Hangover. It's like yeah. all that bullshit. I mean, there'll be, they'll, I can't even think of what the, um, I suppose Road Trip's kind of earlier, but the same sort of thing. So is, it, is that the same guy? I feel like that's the same guy. Maybe, I don't know. Road Trip. I think Todd Phillips, the director of The Hangover, directed Road Trip, but I might be talking rubbish. I think yeah. this movie, actually, it qualifies as fart cinema slightly as well, because... I mentioned that it was absolutely huge when it came out. I think it, it made like an obscene amount of money compared to how much it cost to make. It was like thirty-five million, based mm-hmm. on, and it made about five hundred million. So it was huge. This movie has dwindled in terms of its reputation in the years that it's come out, and I think that's partly because the sequels. The sequels, yeah. <laughs> I actually, when I watched this fucking film, I couldn't believe how good it was, and yeah. I was like, why don't why don't I embrace this and watch it more regularly? Because I watch other films as you know worse than this more regularly, mm. and then I, I, I realised when I looked up the sequel and I saw that fucking monkey on the cover, I was like, <laughs> it all came flooding back that the sequel has that the second one because I didn't even watch the third one. Yeah, the third one's not as uh, the third one's worse than the second one. It goes. It gets even worse because yeah. the second one totally dampened my idea of like Bradley Cooper waking up with a hangover. It was yeah, just like, I think oh, I uh, think it did that to a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, when I watched it as a teenager, I, I thought the second one was really good, but I haven't seen it since, so I can't possibly say. It, I'm going to give them all a second. Well, I'm going to give the second and third one a, a, another go over because uh, maybe yeah, maybe they're not as bad. But that that for, this first one that we're talking about today, I really like it. Yeah. It's wonderful. It's so good. So I also think that another uh, reason this has maybe dwindled into fartdom is that uh, I don't think it could be made now. Certainly not as a wide release movie by a big major studio. I think maybe Netflix could push a raunchy comedy like this out, but I don't see a movie like this doing that well. Have we already nowadays. gone past the age of jokes like this? Yeah, yeah so. for sure. All yeah. right, so the plot of The Hangover. Yeah, go on. What's the plot, Simon? Actually, do you want me to say it? <laughs> I'll, maybe I should try this maybe one you since, it's, do it, since it's easy. You know, <laughs> give me an easy one to talk about, right? There's a guy called Doug who's getting married. Mm. Uh, so there's. I'm already fucking tired of this. There's um yeah, they go out on they go out on the stag night. It's three friends that form the main cast. That's uh, 
Do you want me to do it? Bradley, yeah, okay, fucking fine. I'm already doing such a bad job. You're embarrassing the podcast. So, this film's about uh, four guys who go on a... Do you want me to do it? Bachelor... (laughs) Four guys called Simon... (laughs) No, Phil is Bradley Cooper. Stu is played by Ed Helms. Alan is played by Zach... Galifianakis. Galifianakis. Galapagos, yeah. And well, these were all star-making roles, apart from Justin Bartha's character, who 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 is Doug, the man who goes missing. Oh, so, you know his name because I was going to Bartha. deliberately not mention it because <laughs> I think I feel like it was like you're going to play missing dude who's found at the end and you know with sunstroke because you're such a boring. B- well, yeah, that's, that's a good one. Yeah, well, these three so, guys are going to make the film and be on the poster. It feels dumb even describing the plot of this film because everyone's seen it but uh, three, four guys go on a bachelor party in Las Vegas they wake up the next morning with no memory of what's happened and one of them is missing that's the, the man who is the the, br- <laughs> the bride to be Justin Bartha's character Doug uh, and the three men who are one is a kind of jockey uh, teacher played by Bradley Cooper one is a really nerdy uptight dentist call, uh, who's played by Ed Helms who's called Stu and one is a mentally challenged naive and pretty Fucking dangerous man child called Alan, who's played by Zach Galvin. And he's only friends with them because he's the brother of the bride. Yeah. So it's that thing. He, has, he kind of shoehorns in there. Yeah. Where the other two guys are like, I don't know about this guy. <laughs> yeah. uh, constantly having conversations about him when they're alone and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. So, uh, think, like, what, what you were saying about this movie actually being brilliant. I, and I completely agree. I When I first saw this film as, as a youngster, I remember, I, I, I missed the boat. I didn't see it when it first came out because I think I was too young for it, probably. I don't remember. But I saw it on a, I watched it on a bus and I actually didn't see the last maybe 20 minutes of it. So I didn't even see the resolution. <laughs> but I remember thinking it was quite overrated. I remember being like, eh. But now, watching it yesterday, I was like laughing the entire time. And no, not many movies do that. I, I found this film hilarious. <laughs> like, it's so good. It's like watching a Simpsons episode or something because there's just like moment to moment clever details and Get like guns that aren't fired until you know later on in the uh, like Chekhov's guns. Is that, is that is that what it's called? A Chekhov's gun? Is that a saying? Is that, is that like so? A Chekhov's you know? gun is a thing in storytelling where if you show a gun hanging on the wall of a set of a of a show, uh, then it needs to be fired by the third act. That that the the gun that you set up and show on the stage, it that is a thing in the audience's eye and it needs to be fired. So does it always refer to a gun? Well. No, I, I yeah, because like this, the fact that save the cat is a, not always about a cat. <laughs> right, exactly. So it's the same thing. Yeah, gun, yeah. it's like you know, if uh, so, if a girl's underpants are like lying on a desk, then in the third act, she's going to put them on and. You know, <laughs> I love who your mind goes to that. Yeah. You. <laughs> filthy boy, uh, filthy head out of the gutter. Wonderful, right? Okay, uh, we need to get into the fact that very quickly, I think that this film does the Deadpool trope of starting. Showing you yeah. uh, a point later on before the credits. So yeah, that's what I mean. So it's the first the first moment of the film. That's is, the Chekhov's gun. Thing, is or, right? yeah, exactly. Well, that's, that's sort of a gun. It's not really, but it opens with them in a desert phoning the wife to say uh, they're it, not going to the, be making the wedding. <laughs> yeah, the fu- we've lost Doug. We fucked up. They've got blood all over them and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> they're out in a desert, and it's like she's like, "I'm getting married in five hours." And, and he's like, like, "No, you're not. That's not going to happen." <laughs> so it's it starts with a defeatist thing like, of like, "Oh shit, how, it's how, gone down." Yeah, how did how did they f- up this stag do? So yeah. it's almost it's like, uh, "Let's put our feet up and uh, let's see the details." Then let's yeah. see it unfold. Exactly. <laughs> Obviously, something extreme is about to 
Well, you're about to see several extreme things, probably. <laughs> yeah. So let's get ready for it. You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So this this movie... So the guys wake up in Caesar's Palace, which is the fancy-ass Las Vegas hotel. They wake up in this hotel room, and there's a tiger in the bathroom. Zach, uh, goes, Zach just goes to the toilet, yeah. uh, and there's a growling tiger over his shoulder. It's fucking brilliant. Even when you know it's coming, you yeah, still, yeah. you still fucking. There's chickens all over the room. There's, uh, there's a, and then there's a baby in the closet. And they actually, there's a moment that's absolutely hilarious to me where they're uh, deliberating on whether or not to just leave the baby in the hotel room. And then they're like, "There's a fucking tiger in the bathroom." Like, it's like the fact they're even thinking about like contemplating. Maybe it'll be, you'll be safe just there. Yeah, yeah exactly. maybe we should just leave a baby and a tiger in the same room together. Like, maybe that'll just be fine. It's just so Ed Helms actually talked about this in, in the movie. He said that what's good about this ha- the first Hangover film is that um, none of the characters are funny. Well, Alan arguably is pretty funny, and I think as the series gets on, Zach Galifianakis really pushes him as, as being like a total comedy character. But in this film, none of the characters are really that funny and the hilarity comes from how dumb and crazy the situations are and how dumb they are, right? Right. So Ed Helms talks about that in the movie. No, no, he talks about he talks about it in a in, in an a, interview later on. He, he, he said on, yeah. he said that what's what's great about the Hangover is that he's not making jokes; he's just reacting to stupid situations, and that in itself is funny. Yeah. And I think that's totally the secret of that film's success. Because really. I, I was thinking there, how amazing if he did actually like say, you know, what's great about this film and start, to, and I didn't even remember <laughs> it. If I didn't remember that scene happening, then that's really absurd. That's some dead bullshit right there. <laughs> So yeah, uh, yeah, but the things I was talking about, the moment-to-moment clever details and stuff, like Stu the dentist, he loses a tooth, like so he wakes up having lost a tooth, that's kind of ironic. Um, there's chickens in the hotel room, as I mentioned, and you know if you piece that together in your head, you know they stole chickens so they could feed the tiger that they stole, uh-huh. right? Yeah. Dog, it turns out the dog, the missing groom, is on the roof of the hotel where they started the whole night, and uh, they figure this out because the drugs that cause the memory loss are called roofies, so that, that's, that's the moment that slots everything together. And then you actually, and obviously because we've both seen this film before, you actually see Alan, who it turns out spikes the drinks that they take at the start of the movie, um, with roofies. If you watch, if you watch closely, you can actually see Alan spiking the drinks uh, ah. before they take the drinks on the on the roof. It's like the end of Cloverfield, where you see the ship hit the water, and it's like that's the alien. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just like Cloverfield. I never I, Cloverfield was. So it's bad. like che- Chekhov's gun in reverse, where you see like uh, yeah, you see the e- where it started at the end of the film. Yeah, it rewards second viewing, right? Yeah. Um, and even even things like so so the Chekhov gun. It's not really a Chekhov's gun, really, but um, the fact that Alan has a big bunch of roofies that he thought, thought was ecstasy, they later used the roofies to knock out the tiger to get the tiger back to Mike Tyson's house. Ah. So little things like that, I think. It's just clever. It's just it's just fun storytelling and stuff like that. Yeah, so the tiger does belong to one Mike Tyson as well. Yeah. That's... Oh, yeah, we forgot. We neglected to mention that. Yeah. They steal it from Mike Tyson. <laughs> he, makes it, he makes an appearance in this movie... A Which musical appearance, perfect. no doubt. Yeah. So yeah, Mike Tyson's appearance in this film is preceded by the song <laughs> In the Air Tonight by Phil Collins. Yeah. <laughs> I love this bit. <laughs> I can feel it. Yeah. He sings the song and he makes the the three guys who are, who are looking for Doug, they make him sing the song. <laughs> they make him <laughs> sing the, the bit where they go, oh lord, it's so good. And they get really into it, it's so funny. That's, yeah. It makes me laugh so much. So I like uh, that Stu's um, girlfriend or partner, that yeah. the disapproving, you know, and he's got to lie to her about where they're going and stuff. Yeah. She's actually, she's an actor that's in Curb Your Enthusiasm and it's one that where, you know, obviously Larry David in Curb Your Enthusiasm, he picks people 
that'll look good outraged by what he's doing. Right, to make exactly. It uh, yeah. She's got she's this, got that, face, that yeah. fucking look on her face. <laughs> the, the honestly, the it's like the constantly uh, agape mouth as well. Like the like you know the you know the type. Yeah, like, the person's always got their mouth open. I love the way that he finishes her certain uh, sentences, or they finish the sentences. It's like you know, you know that stripper up there grinding away. That's some <laughs> that's, that's so, somebody's daughter. daughter. I was just going to say that's somebody's daughter. He's basically oh. right under Melissa's thumb, and Stu's Stu's arc in this film is that he needs to get the fact get get over his preconceptions that he's got this kind of set life and and realize that he needs to ditch this woman and when he loses a tooth is that like uh i mean it's it's not a fake that's gap right. in his mouth is yeah. it? yeah ed, ed helms actually has no incisor there so for the movie they just took out the fake tooth and so the gap in his teeth is actually real you know in a twist of fate he is actually one of those guys that looks i mean it's never a good look for anyone to be missing <laughs> a tooth but he looks really disgusting without <laughs> that tooth in and they get up really close and have shots <laughs> of him like he, he refers to himself as a as a hillbilly uh as a hillbilly something of some description yeah. well party parties party parties party parties party parties god damn it the living breathing meme Anyway, yeah. Oh man. So the Mike Tyson actually owns Seven Tigers in real life. So they mm. what they did is uh, what I understand is Todd Phillips and Co bought the script for about two million dollars, and then they um, then they messed with it. They added in Mike Tyson. They I think they added in they made Alan a little bit more psychopathic or, or a little bit more mental. And then they included things like Mike Tyson and stuff like that. Yeah. So they factored in mom- that sort of famous hallmarks of Vegas and that kind of culture and, and, and pushed it in. And I think it works really well because you've got the cleverness of the script plus the zany details of kind of Todd Phillip and Co's imagination. Whereas in the second one, and I'm just this is just from memory, the raunchiness is so, so, so over the top in the second one to the point where it's kind of like, uh, it's a bit nauseating. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a bit too much. I just want to say as well, like the, the, you were talking about how there's the this year's hangover thing. Mm. This year's, the reason that that will also be coming out a lot in posters and blurbs and things is because when a film hits big like this and it yeah. is low budget, the first thing people want to do is how do we fucking do it how again? How do we do that? Yeah. How do we do it again? Come up with the next concept that's cheap that'll mm. work brilliantly or whatever. You yeah. Know? And it never. It's it's it always never works. Yeah. It's always one of the elements is surprise and that's not going to happen if you're just doing this exactly. formulaic yeah, thing yeah yeah and I think and I, and I always talk about movies like this as being lightning in a ball and I'm going to refer to this film as being that as well because is I it think patterned into your brain it's patterned into my brain and it's lightning in a ball and it's got lots of practical effects and it's got oh my god I'm just I'm just a, I'm just a fucking meme, am I? God damn it. The living, breathing meme. Uh, talking about living, breathing memes, Mike Tyson owns tigers. He actually owns tigers. It made me think, you know how there's a, a sportsman called Tiger Woods? Uh-huh. What exotic pet do you think he has? <laughs> just use your imagination. I, th- I actually think that I reckon Mike... he's got a woodpecker. <laughs> he probably does have a woodpecker. You know, do you want to see my woodpecker? <laughs> like, that's like his line. That's his out. Yeah, that's his out. His out is like, he, he says to people, do you want to see my woodpecker? And then if, they, like... if they take it in that way, he goes, and... and he no, goes, I mean a woodpecker. I've actually got one. Look. And he, and he goes, ah! And then the woodpecker flies down, trained into his hands. Like, and he's like, yeah. here. And he smells with that big, broad smell. Like, 
Here's my woodpecker. Here <laughs> it is. I actually thought maybe uh, Mike Tyson might be his exotic pet. I thought that Mike, <laughs> Mike Tyson might like pretend to go home and then sneak out the back and go to Tiger Woods' house where he just chains himself up in a, in a kennel. <laughs> and like, you know, you, when, when the postman comes in, he's just like, you piece of shit. <laughs> you know? Well, apparently Mike Tyson only agreed to doing this film because he had a really bad cocaine habit. Like, oh, this will help, help me with my cocaine Yeah, habit. apparently, apparently like he took on the film to fund his cocaine <laughs> and, and apparently it's not going to help him it's going to fund it brilliant yeah, apparently he was, he was like on coke in scenes that he was in the film which is kind of crazy but I, I don't know how it might just be a fun story I don't really Self-help. know Self-help. but then also what I was going to say is the lightning in a bottle part was, was things like the, the and I guess this happens in a lot of movies the actors all seem to have a bit of a, a hand in what they were making as well. So things like Mr. Chow, who uh, is the Chinese gangster. Oh, actually, I don't want to say Chinese gangster because he he talks about having Chinese nuts, but then Ken Jong talks about how the character is inspired by the fact that he's Korean, South Korean, American. And he says that he also thinks it's got a bit of Vietnamese anger in it or something like that. Like, that's what he mm-hmm. talks about. So it's just a broad Asian gangster. But um, Ken Jong talked about how he wanted his introductory scene to be him jumping out of the car boot naked instead of him fully clothed. I think he's got socks on. Well, he's not completely <laughs> naked. <laughs> he's, got, he's got socks on, and they clearly put like a, a, a big massive bush over his like genital area. So do you think that all oh, that's fake? What's going on down there, uh, mate? There's no way he would allow that in the film if that's what it looked like. Really, you think so, mate? He's like the the big joke is that he's got a micro penis. Like like the joke is that he's just got this absolute like mess of hair with a tiny little penis and you don't think that that might be what he just looks like I don't think so (laughs) what could be I don't don't know if he'd own it quite as well but maybe you know what respect to Mr. Jong I don't know and also um, Alan's kind of line near the start of the film where Stu talks about his uh, the ring that he's going to give Melissa to, to be engaged with her. Alan goes, they give out rings to the Holocaust? The Holocaust ring, yeah. The Holocaust ring. My grandmother's Holocaust and ring. And apparently Alan's character was going to say something crude about Stu's mum instead of uh, that dumb line. And apparently Zach Galifianakis wanted that line to be in the film because, first of all, it would set up that Alan's dumb and knows nothing about the world. And second of all, because if they can make a joke about the Holocaust land in the first part of the movie audiences are pretty much set to have a you know a good time with this you know they, mm-hmm. they're in safe hands and i think that's true i think you're pretty much on a rail of where you walk the line of offensive and raunchy and fun and inventive and you know i think it works so nicely this film the, the zach thing um we could pretty much do like you he is he is a funny character like Who, zach uh, yeah the yeah. yeah the alan thing alan, alan is hilarious he uh you know he's got kind of like a checklist oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, he's yeah. got like a checklist of creeper moments as well uh, <laughs> yeah. dumb moments and creeper moments like well the dumb moment the first dumb moment is not, is that not like the, the when he asks the <laughs> the receptionist woman is this the real Caesar's palace? Like, <laughs> yeah. did Caesar actually live here? <laughs> and he, he tries to play it off. He's like, yeah, I didn't think so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Alan. No, he's, he's very lovable in this film. Yeah, he's a lovable, he's a lovable klutz. I guess, yeah, he, he, his character is funny. The other two are just, they play it straight, but because they react in such a way, it makes it hilarious. Another one is when he's carrying the... He, he carries the baby out of the hotel room. And dis- <laughs> when they decide not to leave it with the tiger, he's the one that puts it in the carrier. And, it, you know, I think Ed Helms' character is like, uh, are you sure you should be in charge of that thing? And he's like, what do you mean? I found a baby before. <laughs> with a total serious face. I found a baby. I found a baby before. <laughs> It turns out as well that this baby is actually uh, the mother of this uh, child is played by Heather Graham as right. 
a stripper called Jade. Jade, that's right. Yeah. Who, <laughs> in, a, in a further, you know, turn of weird events, uh, Stu has married. In... Still, yeah, I forgot about that. So Stu's, Stu's got married, married to a stripper who's got a baby. Another creeper moment is when the stripper, Jade, uh, breastfeeds the baby. And of course, Zach... Uh, Alan's character just stares just at it. Just stares at it with his mouth. Kind of adds to his complex Freudian, uh, <laughs> Freudian <laughs> psychology. Because Alan, in later in the later film, I think it's the second film, he, he refers to himself as a stay-at-home son, which is obviously hilarious. Because he's in this, he's from this big rich family, and he's just the the special son of this of this big rich family, which is I think is a perfect little detail. Um, yeah, no, I mean like uh, if you're actually if you're sh- you know sharpen picking up the details you see a photograph of the family on the wall and he looks yeah. all well dressed up and <laughs> hair combed and all that yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you know exactly who that is you're like and oh that's yeah. the that's the the wife the bride to be's uh, brother isn't yeah it? jeffrey tambor's the patriarch and he's he's got this kind of uh, world weary thing about him where, where he knows exactly what happens in vegas and he and he'll just excuse anything that happens in vegas <laughs> very funny very cool so it's like a, it's a total boys behaving badly film, and I think that that maybe that aspect of it is aged oh, quite badly. Yeah. But then I think something like Bridesmaid, which which came out two years later, it does the exact same thing with a female cast and does it as successfully. I think you know, right? Because yeah. Bridesmaids was the kind of was the one where the claim of it being the next Hangover was pretty much valid, right? Don't yeah, know if you have I think Bridesmaids? so. Yeah, yeah, I've watched yeah. That's that, a good yeah, fun. Totally. It's a fun movie, right? Yeah. When you say boys behaving badly, Phil, that makes me think of a film called Very Bad Things with uh, Christian Slater. And is that uh, that's got a similar premise, right? Yes, they go to Vegas and there's a prostitute involved and something, someone not something very dark happens. Yeah, yeah. someone dies. And it actually it? gets it's it tries to be a black comedy, but it's so dark that people just, yeah, you're like, like, people just think it, that kind of turned my stomach. I came yeah. out of that film thinking that just kind of made me feel a bit depressed and turned my stomach a bit. <laughs> uh, so I don't know if that film did bad, did very badly <laughs> or not, but why would you try it? Yeah, it's like when The Hangover came out, they were probably like, oh, do we want to go there? Because that film, Very Bad Things, was shit. Mm. <laughs> Well, actually, yeah. what, what I think, what yeah. I love about this film as well is that the premise is just so good. It's such a great premise. Like, the idea that you can wake up after, after a party and not know what's happened and have to piece together what happened. It's not that original a premise, but it's the kind of premise that it makes you wish you'd come up with it. You're like, oh, what a good idea. How about a mystery movie where it's about piecing together a night out? It's like, how good is that? <laughs> they, they even have to visit the, the hospital because Phil, a.k.a. Bradley Cooper... It's got the hospital band, so they have to they, they go and speak to the doctor that, uh, that helped them and stuff and everything like that. They see the security tape of them stealing uh, the tiger, and it's like, oh, it's at, it was at two thirty-eight, and Doug was still with us. So that's yeah, good. so they can uh, piece it together. Yeah, it's so yeah. satisfying that way. And and like even things like so when they're initially when they wake up, they go down to the hotel restaurant, and Alan finds Stu's tooth in his pocket, and then that that triggers. Uh, Bradley Cooper's character Phil to say oh actually it's a really good idea check your pockets and then yeah. that gives them a lead so aspects like that it's just such a satisfying thing to to have in a film like it's not like a kind of hackneyed mystery where you're kind of explained everything really obviously it there, it does actually unfold and you could probably feasibly figure out what happens with the details you're given probably I think. <laughs> Probably. I, I want to ask as well. Like you won't, you haven't seen the film Rain Man with Tom Cruise and 
no, Dustin Hoffman. I haven't, but I know that this film parodies the last bit. Did you it. get the parody? Is like, that when they're counting cards? That they yeah. yeah no, I, <laughs> and they I, come I, down the escalators <laughs> and it's the same shot with the same piece of music and stuff and all that. Or at least it's a song that's from the Rain Man soundtrack at least. Okay, okay. Uh, and so they pick it, they lift a song at the Rain Man soundtrack and he comes down the escalator with Bradley Cooper being the handsome Tom Cruise character right, and yeah. Zach Gillenarfomler. What is Galifianakis. You've got it down, man. I think that's right. He's, he's holding his hands in that particular way in a bright blue suit and, and just with his head is. tilted oh. and it's like it's, 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 it's Dustin Hoffman it's like he's taken remember that scene where he took his fucking autistic brother with like the amazing math skills to go and count cards in Vegas <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that's what happened and even there's a there's a verbal uh, there's a politically incorrect verbal reference to Rain Man earlier on where, where, where um, Alan says you know Dustin Hoffman could do it in Rain Man and he was a retard it's like oh, yeah. a retard, and then and then dog, the uh, the dog character's like retard, Alan, like really condescending, like you know, <laughs> like shut up, dog. Yeah. Alan's a child. I think maybe maybe I should complete the the list of Zach uh, creeper scenes because there's also the creepy bit where he starts singing a weird song about and we are the three best friends <laughs> that anyone could have. We're well, the three best friends, and the other two guys are just in the car. No, like, okay. Yeah, it's fine. No, but they kind of get into it too, right? <laughs> <laughs> but what? Yeah, no. I guess, love... guess they have to. They're trapped in a car with a guy, you know. <laughs> and they need to find the dog. Yeah. But no, what's uh, what I love about that is that that was completely improvised by Zach Galifianakis. <laughs> he just yeah. decided to burst into song and me were the best friend. <laughs> yeah, and because um, because the Stu's going, we're back, we're back, and then Zach Galifianakis, <laughs> and we're the three best friends that anyone can have. Also, the song that Stu sings about tigers um, while they're waiting for the tigers' roofies to kick in. That is that was completely improvised by Ed Helms as well. So the what do tigers dream of when they take a little tiger snooze? <laughs> I know the words to that by heart. <laughs> I was a big Hangover fan back in the day, man. You even know the songs. By the way, there's a, there's a song in the soundtrack, and it was it's by a song by the Donnas. It's called "Take It Off," or is it? Yeah, "Take It Off." Take it off. Uh, for some reason, I remembered it as being "Shake It Off," but that's because it's a Taylor Swift song. <laughs> And I was like, thinking, Taylor Swift is so weird. I was like, wait a minute, right? Is there two songs called Shake It Off that also happen to be two of the great modern classic songs <laughs> that you would stack up next to the Beatles and David Bowie? Mm. Mm. <laughs> shake it off, shake it off. No, it's take it off. So, gonna yeah, it, it just it would be too much of a coincidence for two songs to have the same name that are both contemporary classic songs. Well, I don't know, because uh, the Bee Gees have How Deep Is Your Love, and then Calvin Harris also has How Deep Is Your Love. Is it not a cover version, though, no? <laughs> no. All it's right, cool. It's fucking terrible. How Deep Is Your Love. <laughs> how deep, how deep is your love? So, yeah, I, I mentioned that when I first watched this film, I thought it was overrated, but then I was one of those stupid kids. I was like stupid, angsty teenagers. I think in subsequent watches, I quite enjoyed it. And then, when, as I said, when the second one came out, I was nuts about The Hangover. Uh, I was actually looking at my old Facebook statuses the other day. And uh, the day before The Hangover 2 came out, I just posted a status that just said, Hangover 2, Hangover 2, Hangover 2, Hangover 2, Hangover 2, Hangover 2. <laughs> and then my friend's older brother commented on it saying, Shut up, mate, or something like that. Does that come up every year? It's like, uh, you have memories to look back on. And it's <laughs> yeah. like, just Hangover 2, Hangover 2. Yeah, yeah. I think I actually deleted it in shame. I was like, I can't even... I can't yeah. even have this attached to my name anymore i mean like i think that i probably like posted about the wicker man remake mm. like oh this could be quite interesting like some news article from IndieWire or something <laughs> but no i don't think i, I did go wicker man wicker man, wicker man. Wicker man too <laughs> can't wait to watch nicholas cage and the wicker man no, 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 yeah yeah 
but yeah, I think it, it's ultimately so as as much as a kind of frat bro type movie this seems to be. I actually think it it does quite an admirable job at subverting that towards the end. So Ed Helms starts out by being disgusted with this prostitute character that he's uh, that he's married, and then at the end he he actually realizes that she's a wholesome, nice person who's just you know. <laughs> just doing her job and he actually asked her out on a date when he when he says do you want to go and get what you're doing next weekend and I was like yes yeah. he's going to date the fucking hot hooker <laughs> well the hot the hot uh, escort escort yeah, yeah yeah she uses stripping as a way to meet clients <laughs> <laughs> and then also uh, Phil's character starts out talking about how marriage is the worst thing that you can do and they're in the car and he's saying to Doug this is the worst decision you're going to make you're going to die a little bit every day and at the end of the film at, at Doug's wedding the first thing he does is hug his wife and kiss his kids, and you know it's clear that it's all just a big he, bad boy act. Right? He's or or maybe he's changed and he gets it now. He's learned to value oh, life. It could be that, yeah. It could be an arc of sorts. <laughs> I don't know. So yeah, what? no, I think I think claims that this film is is too much that way, too much frat bro. That is that like a legit kind of complaint that's made about it now. I think it, I think right? at the time and 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 then definitely in the time since people have been like, oh, it's a bit, it's a bit sexist, you know that kind of. Thing. Well, I, I was going to bring up. I really like the fact that not only does he uh, does not only does does Stu make a serious thing of, of actually going for Heather Graham's character? When he goes back home, and of course he's got to deal with, you know, how, how what's going to happen with is it right. is Melissa? It Melissa. Melissa. Sour-faced woman of curb your enthusiasm, fame for me, and I was just like, mm. oh god, how is he going to deal with her? Manipulative I, woman. I think that the scene where he throws it back in her face because she's like slept with like a bartender somewhere or something. Yeah, he he's she's she's cheated on him, but he just makes excuses for it, and she's hit him, and he just makes excuses for it. He he says, "Oh, I was out of line." So he's in this abusive relationship with a woman, and the catharsis that comes with him actually realizing that she's a piece of crap and he doesn't need to be involved with her is mwah. Yeah. So well, it's no, 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 no. no. It's quite good. And it cuts away to Bradley Cooper character kind of smiling with his kind yeah. of, thank fuck I was waiting for this to happen. <laughs> yeah. So it gets that bit right. But I don't think, I think it's somehow less satisfying than it could be. Oh, and maybe okay. it's because I've seen this happen brilliantly. I mean, it's not the same situation of breaking up yeah. with someone. But do you remember the Office Christmas special? <laughs> it's been a while, but right? yeah. There's a pregnant woman <laughs> oh, character yeah. who is so annoying all the way through the film. And you can see Martin Freeman's character. He's stuck sitting next to her instead of uh, That's right. yeah. Gareth character. He's just like, oh, God, like that. And then there's a brilliant moment at the end of the at the end of the second part of that Christmas special where that sort of big dude from the... Do- uh, from the warehouse hmm. comes up smoking a cigarette in the office party smoking away <laughs> he's actually the actor he's from Inbetweeners he played the Falmouth guy's That's right. dad yeah, yeah. this dude he delivers this brilliant line when the, the girl's just like excuse me do you mind not smoking next to me please hello I'm pregnant and he just like he goes yeah well maybe you should fuck off her when you're pregnant you dozy cow you think we care about your child as much as you do just because you let some useless tosser blow his beans up your mop. <laughs> well done. <laughs> Merry fucking Christmas. Like that. And it just, it absolutely hands it to her so brutally. <laughs> and it just like, and you just kind of go, this is so wonderful. Yeah. Because you are expecting, you know, there's this sort of chivalrous thing of maybe that's not a good way to go when a female character is an asshole. But it is. Just lay it on. Just like, <laughs> if like this woman is an asshole in, in the film, in The Hangover. She is like constantly, she gets what's coming to her, she's yeah. holding this cloud of, uh, of, 
complaint and mil- the milieu of disapproval over this guy's head. The entire She's thing. the one that's done everything that's bad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're the one that's fucking done it. <laughs> the only complaint about this film is that that... that end scene wasn't more satisfying it should have been they should have called Ricky Gervais and Steve Merchant and said could you write a screed for Stu to go into that fucking puts this woman underground in front of everyone ah so there you go I want I want her fucking buried by the time this guy finishes talking I, I think it's fine but that just loses that half mark. <laughs> it wasn't quite brutal enough at the end. <laughs> oh, God damn it. In my humble opinion. 